All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, Nicholas and myself chat with musician Gene Hoagland about the art of air drumming, ghost encounters, the early years of Slayer, Death Clock, multitasking on the road, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Just to get started here, why don't you just take us back in time to when you were a youngster? Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? Definitely a book reader. Absolutely. They had me at a 12th grade reading level in kindergarten. That was pretty good. So I was, I was in all the you know gifted classes and advanced classes and all that kind of stuff. So I was definitely a, a book reader. Absolutely. And I was a super sports fan and rock so all three of those things just drove my super childhood, you know, from age two to graduated high school. You know, that was all huge part of my everything there. So books, sports, school, I mean, uh, metal, rock and roll, definitely music, music in general. Absolutely. So did you have maybe a, a writer or a genre that you leaned towards when you were reading early on? I mean, when I was a kid, like in first grade, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I loved this author named Matt Christopher. And that could have been a, a pseudonym for all I know, but he wrote a lot of sports books and talk about melding two things I really dug. So that was really cool. And as I got a little bit older, I started reading a lot of Joseph Wambaugh, you know, in about sixth grade or so. And he wrote a lot of like true crime kind of stuff. And, you know, he wrote uh, like the choir boys and stuff like that, you know, like books that they, you know, hard hardened books hard-boiled books that they you know made into movies and that sort of thing and as i got a little bit older i started getting into this author named andrew vox or andrew vax i guess is how they pronounce it and uh and so yeah all those guys those guys ended up being you know big influence on my dark angel era kind of thing when you think back to formative films and tv shows when you were growing up what comes to mind initially well i was a i was a super speed racer fan definitely (laughs) (laughs) That was really cool. Yeah, God, I remember Gigantor, the Gigantor. That was pretty fun, and <laughs> the banana splits. And I'm, you know, this is all when I was a super kid. You know, like like just super young. You know, uh, Electric Company. You know, Morgan Freeman was on Electric Company when I was like four or five, watching the Electric Company. I swore to God that Morgan Freeman was was Jimi Hendrix. I was like, how'd they get Jimi Hendrix on on the Electric Company? <laughs> cool, you know, I thought he's dead. But I, you know, I was like four at the time, so. That's pretty fun, but all that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of wide world of sports on the weekend mm. and, you know, Monday night football and definitely the NFL, the NFL on Sundays. Well, that was a big driving force when I was growing up. Totally. Who's your team? Where'd you grow up? 
I was born in Dallas, so that might tell you that. Oh, so, okay, say no more. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, I, I'd been through the one in fifteen seasons and the three and thirteen seasons and a whole lot of the eight and eight seasons. You know, it's like, hey, man, that's that's definitely my team of all teams. And then you know, growing up in L.A., at, you know, having the having the Lakers, that was my basketball team. Dodgers, my baseball team. So there you go. Been challenging to keep up on a whole lot of the sports of late, especially post pandemic. Now that everything's like back and running, so trying to keep up as much as I have historically has been a bit of a challenge, you know. Since you mentioned the pandemic, you know, everything came to a standstill. But how, you know, fucking crazy has it been for you now that we've kind of moved past and everything is open? Is it like more busy than you've ever been? Well, actually, during the pandemic, that was like the busiest I've ever been. Wow. You know, and now it just ramped up even more. So, I mean, I was pretty darn busy for the last couple decades and then the pandemic hit and i kind of switched up my entire approach to everything and you know i became a live streamer on twitch there for you know really solid through the entire pandemic and that taught me an entire new just skill set of things you know which i've since you know kind of forgotten since the pandemic's <laughs> over and just have just run and run and gun you know non-stop that was really interesting and really entertaining for me because you know having nothing else going on so i was like man as i get a little bit more you know of a more experienced age i guess the one thing that has happened like i feel younger than ever i feel like my skills are better than ever however my skills do deplete my chops go away a lot quicker now than they ever did before that's why i had to keep my chops up got to keep the chops up so i thought well what better way to force myself down to the studio than you know i was speaking with my friend alex Bent. And I remember reading a, uh, Alex Bent is the drummer of Trivium. And I remember reading a headline on like Blabbermouth or something where Matt Hafey, the singer, he was, he mentioned, you know, I make more money doing Twitch than I ever did through my YouTube channel or my this or my that, that caught my attention. And so I called up Alex. I was like, Hey, is there any validity to the whole live streaming on Twitch? And he's like, yeah, man, Matt's not kidding. We figured out what Matt was making a month. I was like, wow, that is, you know, substantial. So maybe I should give this a shot. And he's like, dude, you would do great at this. And little did I know that it takes a lot of work. You guys know, you guys do this. You guys are doing yeah. what you're doing here. And it you know, it takes a lot of work to get something going, especially if you're doing a live stream, a live anything. It is a challenging endeavor, but I was up for it. It was like, you got nothing else to do, Gene. So throw yourself into this, you know, pretty, pretty heartily. And, and that, that should do you well, man. That's how that worked out. So I was able to keep my chops up. And that, that was the thing. Well, just if you have to play every day, because I figured that's what I would do. I would, I would um, open it up to people to come in to my rehearsal studio and just kind of be a fly on the wall through the video. And I'm just going to be doing things that keep my chops up. So I started, you know, I would take requests, you know, and there were so many times I'd be, I'd be playing songs that I'd never heard before, never heard before, but I'd be playing along right to them, you know, and that honed some skills, you know, and, yeah. and that was really fun. And what a great challenge, what a great mental challenge. And my chops they not only maintained but they developed big time so that was really helpful you know and I'm, I'm dying to get back to streaming it's just got to get to the point where things start to kind of just just kind of mellow out and they don't seem to be getting mellow anytime <laughs> soon so that's that's my thing so just to back up a bit gene this is something i like to ask everybody what scared you as a kid the grays you know <laughs> like you know just the thought like and this was way before the grays were a thing you know i remember seeing like the ufo incident you know when i was a kid and seeing travis walton giving an interview about his abductions and you know they pop the thing on the screen this is what they look like and you're just like oh god jesus and so having Imagine looking out the window and seeing a gray's face just, you know, up against yeah. the window. I, dang, that thought used to scare the hell out of me when I was a kid, you know. <laughs> and like I said, this is like 1972 sort of thing, you know. So, well, you know, maybe 70, 74, 75. You know, I remember it was about 75 when Travis Walton had come out with his interviews and stuff. And, you know, they they, they had the diagrams of what they look like. Oh, the shit, man, that's, that's terrifying to me. It's crazy, you know, when you think about like ufos when you were growing up and when we were kids and now you might get a 
a report on Fox News or CNN about some flying object or something. It's kind of weird. Right. You know, and these days they're, you know, they're obviously, you know, all the classified things that are that are being <laughs> declassified. So, yeah, it's just kind of kind of crazy. But I've never had a, a, a stance on it either way. But mm-hmm. since you talk about what might have scared me as a kid, you know, like that, nice. just the thought of that would scare the hell out of me. And, you know, like close encounters of the third kind you know all that you know going back to your childhood what was your intro to music was there a person that got you into music or or you know it's listening and playing like what what was your introduction i would say that probably like the american top 40 radio was my initial foray into music my parents liked to tell tell me about the time when i was like two years old and i demanded that demanded that they take me to the record store to get the latest Santana single, which was called No One to Depend On. And, you know, get that 45, you know, back in the days of 45s. My mom used to like tell me that story, like, God, you were just really adamant about that, you know? <laughs> and I remember being in Texas. You know, Texas had great radio. Back in the 70s and 80s, they just had fantastic radio in Texas. And, you know, just being exposed to that, my sister was five years older than me. And I had a cousin from Texas who was six years older than me. So my cousin was the one who introduced me to like Kiss and all that stuff. And my sister was super into all the, you know, what what is now, you know, classic rock, you know, all the Queen and Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and Angel and Black Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. Both of those folks had a huge influence on my on my rock and roll upbringing so so that was pretty cool and you know my sister i i've been to so many concerts you know i started my first concert was in 1977 and that was that was queen and thin lizzy you know i was nine it was one of those things where you know my sister who was like i say five years older than me starting to go to rock concerts in in the 70s my parents would force her to take me you know <laughs> that concert you better take your little brother no, mom what do you cramps my style kind of thing but you know so i went to a lot of concerts when i was young, and the folks would take us too because they'd be like okay you need a chaperone but i remember back in the day you you know we would have to these days of like Ticketmaster and all that kind of stuff, those didn't really exist in the day. You used to have to go to the venue, like the Los Angeles Forum, which is in Inglewood, California. We'd have to go to the LA Forum at like, say, the night before tickets would go on sale. You'd have to go get a priority number and then you could buy your tickets after that, but you'd have to spend all night there. And my sister and I used to do that. You know, <laughs> the 70s were wild west compared to now, man. So we used to do stuff like that. So yeah, now you, Jesus, man, we were definitely latchkey kids. So mm. there you go. What about drums? Is that the first instrument that you tried? How did you gravitate toward drums? Well, after being forced to take piano lessons and stuff like that when I was about like five or six or something i think when i was seven i just that's when i started getting really interested in drums and then when i was eight discovering kiss kiss had released destroyer at that time and and so songs like detroit rock city and king of the nighttime world and flaming youth and sweet pain those songs were great to me so peter chris was my natural you know i gravitated towards him and just drums you know drums were the instrument that you could play at your desk at school, you know, I just like sit there and pound on my desk at school and the teachers would always be like, shut up, you know, Hoagland. <laughs> that's what got me super into playing drums. And in earnest, I became a an air drummer. And I've talked about this for years. You know, I, I, I started air drumming, you know, got myself a little pair of sticks, started air drumming in my bedroom to Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and Ted Nugent and Queen and Black Sabbath. And then I started graduating to a little more, you know, I discovered Rush and King Crimson and UK and Gino Vanelli and Yes and Pat Travers, you know, like the live album, Go For What You Know. That's a fantastic drum album, just a legendary drum album from Tommy Aldridge discovering guys like Tommy Aldridge and Cozy Powell. And then I started kind of gravitating towards the faster side of metal, you know, Cozy Powell playing double bass and Tommy Aldridge playing double bass and then getting more into heavier, you know, less Binks, Judas Priest, double bass. I was like, this double bass thing is amazing. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that is my jam there. So as I got a little bit older, you know, 12, 13, 14, all that kind of stuff and discovering some of the heavier, heavier acts like Rob Reiner with Anvil, definitely Filthy Animal, Taylor Motorhead, you know, like those guys were gods. Rob, Wacko, Hunter, 
an absolute hero of mine. And then keeping that going a few years later, guys like Dean Castronovo that had so much double bass skill and just the taste involved as well. I mean, Terry Bozio, no slouch on the double bass. Like the last 10 seconds of Caesar's Palace Blues from the live UK record, that is the most flying double bass ever recorded at the time you know and, and just it's angel of death chorus you know pretty much you know just flying for the last 10 seconds and any kind of double bass like that that would just excite the hell out of me so that's where i stood with all that and there you go so before you're a roadie gene what was your first job would you have a paper route or something oh well i guess my first let me see well i babysat some kids when i was 12 <laughs> and that you know i think that paid me five bucks a day which is pretty damn killer at that time and that was like a five day a week job over the summer of 80 and so that was key that was purchasing my albums you know i mean you got paid five bucks a day you know it was a full day's job but when you're 12 <laughs> bucks a day yeah baby yeah yeah i bought a lot of records with that i guess that was my first job but i've only ever had one job outside of i was a tech for slayer before i ever had a job job damn. you know like that you know i was going on the road with them you know job. what's the the time frame of that how did you get hooked up with slayer at that point they were playing la tons and they were just another la band mm -hmm. for me when i was 15 when i first saw them you know because i was going to all the clubs i started going to all the la clubs when i was 13 when i was 12 but really you know like 13 i was so into the heaviest stuff i could find and Mm -hmm. I'd seen Slayer a couple of times around when they were in their cover band kind of era, and they weren't the Slayer that we all yeah. knew. You know, they were, you might have seen some pictures, like they kind of looked like scorpions, you know, a lot of right, purple right. bandex and some zebra stripes and that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, at least they weren't glant, they were heavy metal, they were a cover band, they would do, you right. know. Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Deep Purple. As a matter of fact, when I, the first time I saw Slayer as like, yeah this is slick that was valentine's day 1983 and i remember they did a cover of highway star and they were all leathered out they looked just like they did at the on the back of show no mercy you know mm -hmm. just kind of that kind of approach i'd seen them like a few months before that and then they went away for a while and all of a sudden just Blap, they appeared like that and was like whoa holy jesus this is the greatest thing ever and i just remember they did a they did a version of highway star that night and it was incredible i mean the leads were note for note i was like wait a minute at least to my 15 year old ears they mm -hmm. were perfect leads you know like carrie might have done the keyboard solo and hanneman might have done the richie blackmore solo i'm not really sure how it worked out but i was like that was note for note that was a perfect version of highway star way to go guys i remember tons of the songs that they played that night i just used to go see them all the time 83 was about the time that the scene started really exploding the heavy metal scene you know yeah. 82 and 83 the radio rock you know motley crew and and rat and quiet riot and all that kind of stuff were, were really exploding on the scene and that was not my scene at all so bands like metallica and slayer and all the you know all the new wave of british heavy metal all the benhams and motorheads and all that that was my jam and that's what i loved so much about slayer was the fact that nobody's gonna these guys are way too heavy nobody's gonna like these guys because i was yeah. all about being underground into the underground and you know i was 15 you know and, and nobody is gonna like this band ever because they're just <laughs> too heavy you know that's what i talk about and you know when you go to see bands at the clubs it's not hard to go up to the band after the show and say hey man nice show you that was really good you know you guys are killer and we all just became pals and friends and and then you know i they, they were going in to record show no mercy and tom had invited me down to the studio and stuff and you know so i, I made my vinyl debut on on evil has no boundaries the way that i started working forum was i went to one of their shows and tom came up to me a few minutes before the show and said uh looks like our light guy is not going to be here tonight and he's like you see that light board over there you think you could figure that thing out and do lights for us tonight and i was like sure you know never <laughs> done anything like that before. okay yeah sure you know i had no idea what i was doing there were eight buttons to it i mean it was just a little square about the size of an ipad it wasn't anything real technical or anything and at the end of the night i was like god damn i was like i was on stage with the band you know i was the fifth <laughs> member yeah you know because i knew their material I, you know i could do all the punches and all that that kind of stuff and so that was really fun and they were playing once to twice a week 
those days. They were doing like four or five gigs a month in Los Angeles. Easy. And so the next week, exact same scenario. Hey, man, or like I ain't going to make it again tonight. And you want to do it again? I was like, yeah, sure, man. And and then after that, you know, whatever, they lost their light, dude. And I would just show up at the shows, go right to the light board and do my thing. And when it was time for them to go on the road, Tom had to come talk to my parents to, you know, ask my parents permission <laughs> for me to go on the road. And he's like, you, you're, you are a minor, 15, 16 years old. Yeah, man, you had to, had to go talk to your folks and get their permission. So I was like, yeah, that's fun. Obviously, you know, Gene, there's there's drummers and then next level guys, and you're one of those next level guys. No, uh, thank you. Do you remember like anyone early on coming to you and being like, you know, damn, dude, like you can really fucking play the drums or noticing your knack or talent for it? Well, the very first person I ever played with was my cousin, Ken, the same cousin who got me into Kiss and all the all the rock stuff years earlier. I was serious about air drumming, you know, like it was not only air drumming, but I would pound on my bed, pound on pillows, all that sort of stuff and teaching myself rudiments that I had no idea that this thing that I taught myself is a paradiddle. I had no idea things like that. I taught myself how to play drums just by, I never had a drum kit. And so my cousin, he had a band. We were in El Paso where, where he was living. I was visiting for the summer there for a, a time and visiting for the month or whatever. And we went to his band practice and we were there an hour before the rest of his band was there. And he's like, hey man, you want to jump on that kit? And just, can you play anything? And he was the first guy I ever jammed with. And I remember our first song ever was Man on the Silver Mountain by Rainbow. And the good start. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I did really well, you know. And, and, and he was like, "Wait a minute! Like, just, you don't have a drum kit? Like, how did you? How were you able to play this? This is your first time ever on a drum kit, you know? Like, and I'm like, I, you know, I've been playing air drums for five years now, you know, like four years. So at that point, even even you didn't realize you were probably that good. I know, you know, but I'd already been air drumming to Rush and stuff like that. So, you know, playing some, you know, who's a drummer? Craig Gruber or something like that. You know, playing some Rainbow was, that was really easy. So it was <laughs> on for that. So I was surprised. He was surprised. So that was pretty good. And I remember that I used to get told all the time that, you know, my open handed style was wrong all the drummers at school that were all in the school band i was never in the school band i was never in the jazz band or or the the orchestra or whatever the school bands were all the teachers all the other drummers they would chastise me for playing open-handed that is how i learned how to play merely because of where my my record player was located by my bed when I was growing up. It was on the right side of my bed, so I'd hang my legs over this side, play up here. I just became a, an open-handed, left-handed on a right-handed kit drummer. And everybody used to tell me that I was wrong for doing that. And then there was a guy in Los Angeles, one of the best drummers in town. His name was Brian O'Brien. The man's so nice, they named him twice. <laughs> you know, it's always fun. And he played for a band called A La Carte. And A La Carte used to have like Van Halen open for them. Van, you know, A La Carte was well known in the old, this is around 81, 82 or so. And they were already really well known, you know, but they, they were a big influence on Van Halen. They were just around a lot doing shows with all of those bands being the headliner, all the Rats and Motley Crues and Great Whites and all those kind of bands would, you know, Quiet Riots, all those guys would open for A La Carte at the time. And he was an amazing drummer. And I talked him into coming to my place one time. And he was the very first guy that ever told me, you know, he took a look at my style and he was like, dude, this is great. This open-handed thing. This is killer. You can have a mountain of cymbals over here. You can have a mountain of drums over here. Whatever you're doing, that's great. And keep on it. And that was the very first inspiration I got, you know, somebody telling me that I'm not wrong or bad. I remember about a year or so before that happened, I tried to get a lesson from somebody, somebody my sister knew from high school or something. He came over and on the way out to the drum kit, I stopped off real quick and I did some double strokes. I just did that on the oven next to the garage door going out to the going out to the garage. I just stopped and I just did it on the on the oven glass. And he was like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Do that again. And I did it again. He's like, I don't know what that is, but I can't even do that. So there's no <laughs> point in giving you a lesson, trying to give you a lesson. And I was just like, 
I'm supposed to learn drums. I'm going to learn drums if you won't give me a lesson. I don't think so. So I just thought, well, apparently whatever you're doing to teach yourself is going well. So just keep at it. Teach yourself. Because that's I, I really do feel like air drumming. I was giving myself drum lessons every day because I was serious. I was trying to figure out what Neil Peart is playing. I'm listening to his hands. I'm listening to what the hands are doing. Try to figure that out. Listening to what the kick drum is doing. Try to figure that out. All that kind of stuff. You're really giving yourself a lesson every time you're sitting down and playing at playing drums. Pretend mm -hmm. drumming. I was giving myself lessons all the time. So by the first time I got to the kit, it wasn't like I was... You know, like when you see people that obviously don't know how to play drums, they just thrash on the kit for 10 seconds. You know, that was not me. You know, I, I, I could get the job done pretty decently right out of the gate. So I remember playing the, you know, Light Up the Sky by Van Halen. I remember that drum solo. You know, I, I could play that when I was 12 kind of thing. And I remember one time my, my uncle was telling me, you know, you ain't no drummer unless you could play uh, Wipeout. You know, I was playing La Vila Strangiato by Rush by that time, you know, and I said Xanadu and, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, so I took, took my uncle out to the out to the garage and played him Wipeout. And, well, kid, you're pretty good, you know. But I remember having the guys from Slayer were over at my house one day. This was like one of the first times anybody had seen me play drums, you know. It's like they were at my house because they were doing an interview with the kid from up the street street who had a magazine called brain damage his name was vadim rubin vadim i gave this kit that i'm talking about and i gave vadim this kit vadim went on to become this punk rock legend drummer apparently for a band called half off but at the time all four guys were at my house and dave wasn't doing a lot of talking in the interview you know it was mostly jeff carrie you know tom and so dave's like dude let's go out to your let's go out to your garage let's play your drums you know so i'd play a few things dave would jump on my kit play a few things you know and the guys finished the interview right as i i was they came out to the garage and i'm jamming away i'm on my kit you know it's my kit i've got my i'm okay on my kit and i just remember the guys like turning to dave going hey dave looks like we found ourselves our new drummer and i was 15 at the time and that was just that's just woo awesome you know my my idols are telling me i got the i got the goods you know that kind of thing <laughs> so that was pretty fun but that was cool man Earlier, you mentioned, you know, the whole roadie situation with Slayer. Prior to that, I know you said you didn't uh, join the school band or anything, but did you have any friends or amateur bands that you got together with and maybe just played some local bars, stuff like that? My very first gig was with Dark Angel, but my very wow. first band was Dark Angel, but not the same mm -hmm. Dark Angel. When I was in high school in 10th grade, just my buddy from high school, you know, he was he was like, yeah, man, I got this band and you want to come, you know, we just lost our drummer. You want to come join us, you know, just, okay. Started jamming together and I was like, hey, well, what are you guys called? And he's like, well, we're called Dark Angel. And I made them change the name because I thought Dark Angel was kind of a corny name. So I made him change the name to Carnage. And then we didn't go anywhere. We rehearsed a few times, nothing happened from it. And then a few months later, I'm seeing dark angel playing shows you know i was like oh, i guess those guys stayed together and found a new drummer and now they're out there gigging and i went to go see that dark angel thinking i was going to go see my my buddies you know it's like <laughs> oh that is not the dark angel i was thinking of you know and this is about 1982 or so so uh so there you go yeah totally different dark angel just coincidental coincidentally named and there you go but yeah my my first gig wasn't until i was in dark angel dark angel so how, how did you get into that band once you you know once you saw them as a, it was a different band how how did you end up being their drummer? We became friends, you know, as pals with all the guys and especially Jim Durkin, because Jim was Jim and all the Slayer guys. Every, you know, everybody was always hanging out, you know, everybody was you'd go see each other's gigs and then you'd end up at the same party after the show. That, you know, just obviously that's the club scene in any town. And, and you'd always end up at the parties afterwards and all the music is cranking and you start shooting the breeze with somebody about whatever's playing or whatever cool metal bands are out there and what what do you like what do i like here's what, what mags do you read sort of thing and this was when everything was underground and if you'd ever meet anybody else who knew anything about the kind of metal that we were into you know you you just gravitated towards each other because at that time heavy metal was van halen and molly crew and quiet riot and all that kind of stuff you know all the radio stuff and of course you know 
Maiden and Priest and all that sort of stuff. But by these eras, you know, those bands were starting to become Iron Maiden was not underground anymore. You know, the number of the Beast was out and they were, you know, a lot of people were discovering Maiden and Priest and You Got Another Thing Coming was a big hit on the radio. So now people who did not know who Judas Priest was a year before are like, now they're all big Judas Priest fans and Iron Maiden fans and you're losing your back pocket band, you know? So you discover the bands like Motorhead and Venom and Raven and all the underground bands like that. Tank. And that was a band Jim Durkin and I bonded over was tank you know like yeah i love tank i love tank you know that kind of thing i love motorhead i love motorhead you know raven yeah all that kind of stuff you'd hang out and then i saw dark angel they went through a number of lineup changes and and then when they you know they had their drummer jack schwartz for a while i worked for dark angel i did lights for dark angel as well i did lights for everybody in town after slayer gave me that the kickstart of you know hey i can do lights for bands that's really easy to do you know i know all the clubs in town all the clubs know me so i get to show up at the clubs do the lights big deal it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal but i just i would do lights for everybody and all the bands in town savage grace and omen dark angel slayer you know exodus when they'd come down or anybody that would come down from the bay area i'd go down to their lights for them and stuff so it got to the point where uh dark angel over the summer of 84 had recorded we have arrived and i was around for the sessions you know i even wrote lyrics on one of the songs it's a song called no tomorrow i wrote i wrote a a verse for that they needed a verse and you know i jotted something down real quick in the studio and don got up there and sang it and all that stuff so we were all pals and then i think i then went out on the road with slayer and i remember i was doing i would do dave's sound checks for him just so dave could go out in the front of house and and listen to you know hey man check out your band see what you guys sound like you know because a lot of times you know a drummer never gets to hear what the band sounds like from front of house you know that it's because it's if you're a guitarist you got your wireless you can walk out to the front you know if you're a singer you got your wireless mic you can walk out to the front by the sound guy and listen to what it sounds like you know they had wireless back then but you couldn't do that if you were a drummer so i was like hey dave go out in the front of house and you know hey jeff carrie let's play antichrist or something you know i remember playing a lot of dark angel songs with slayer on on that run you know they like dark angel they like playing dark angel songs in south i learned how to play dark angel songs by playing them with slayer uh you know <laughs> kind of thing that's pretty fun you know i remember jamming that but i yeah i just remember doing that a lot and a number of times and i remember after that tour that's when jim had come to me and said hey man maybe i think jim told me later he's like yeah i called carrie i knew they knew you as a drummer you know i i called carrie and i asked about you as a drummer and we had finished the tour and i asked it's a, you know i i I heard Gene was jamming, you know, sound checks with you guys. And how was he? And, and I think Carrie told him, he's like, good drummer, whiny kid, but good drummer. <laughs> you know, that kid's a whiny, complaining kid. But, you know, there you go. And, uh, but, hey, it, it all worked out. So there you go. When's the last time you worked lights? Hmm. God, <laughs> when was the last time? Jesus. Probably, you know, probably in my Vancouver days when I was up there. You know, I spent a decade in Vancouver and I was a drinker then. And I probably, had, you know, it's like probably, hey, move over. Like, I would do like <laughs> somebody coming down. And they'd be like, okay, it's Gene. Just let him do it. You know, get him a vodka. Just he's happy. But what was kind of funny was when Testament was on the, you know, Slayer's So Long tour. Testament was involved in two legs of it. Both legs were, you know, a couple months long. And I remember being a number of shows into the very first leg of it. You know, we were playing big places that would have the every once, you know, most of the shows would have the big screens on the side of the stage. We're playing big sheds, you know, outdoor arenas and that sort of thing. Sheds. We would be at the front of house. We caught every Slayer show. You know, there's a ton of us from all the bands. We'd go to the front of house and watch the shows. And we were always noticing that the band is just killing it. God, they were so amazing every night. And the pyro was so amazing every night. And all the people that were up in the lawn, you know, all the people that, you know, where the band is just ants to those people. The one thing we had noticed was that whoever was running the screens was doing such a horrible job that this is Slayer's last tour. And, you know, here's Gary Holt peeling off some killer lead and the camera guy is shooting Tom staring at Paul 
you know, like that was well known and it would drive us crazy. And I was thinking about the folks up in those super duper nosebleed areas, the lawn, like this is their last time that they get to see Slayer. And those people are getting ripped off, you know? So I went to the band, you know, and I was like, hey, are you guys aware of how bad the screens are? They're like, yeah, yeah, the screens are pretty gnarly, you know? And what, what it was is they did not have their own video package. It's called an iMag. They did not have their own iMag package going, their own screen screens their own director or anything like that they would just use the house guy and inevitably every night the house guy the house crew they're like the house director was like a 65 year old country music fan kind of thing you know like not understanding the concept doesn't know the music at all so doesn't get the concept of oh lead guitar playing a lead get on the lead guitarist who's playing the lead yeah it just it just did not work like that for those guys i knew the material pretty well so i had said hey you know what i could do a better job than whoever is running it (laughs) and they were like really you would do that i was like absolutely you know so i took over running slayers video screens on their final run anything that testament was on that was so much fun that was so fun to do it started off with me just kind of uh I had no idea what I was. I'd never run a video screen before in my life, you know, and it started with me just kind of sitting next to the, you know, in the, in the, in the control room or whatever, the control booth or whatever. I would just be tapping the director on the, you know, pointing at his pointing like with a pencil at the screen, you know, because they, they got a big screen, you know, a big monitor with all the little monitors, you know, here's, you know, you see the drummer, see the guitarist see the singer see the other guitarist and i would just point at the at the monitor you know like here film this guy now and you know that most directors hated that they hated me you know (laughs) and so it just got to the point yeah i did that for the first couple shows and then i was like i'm watching them seeing what they're doing how they're directing this and i was like i think i could just end up doing this you know i'm listening to them communicating you know they got the headphones on they got the microphone and they're talking to their camera guys and i was like i I think i can pick this up so i did man by the first few shows i got the headphones on i got the microphone up to my face and you know hey all right you know camera two get your vocalist you know camera three get your bald guy you know and (laughs) camera four get on the drummer you know all that sort of stuff here's some pyro make sure you get the pyro boom there you go i was in charge of the switcher and all that sort of stuff and so you know, that was just pretty damn fun. And and Johnny Araya, Tom's brother, he was also involved in the very first tour. He's always worked for Slayer. I mean, he's been their tech for 40 years now. You know, he's younger than me. He had mentioned on that tour, he's like, you know, there's only four people from, because I did Slayer's very first tour. That was, you know, their first tour. That was the one that I did. And he's like, there's only four people on this tour from that first tour. And that's Tom, Carrie, me. You. I was like, wow, I I didn't even think about that. You know, I got upgraded from light guy to video guy now. So (laughs) that was pretty damn fun. I don't think there are many roadies out there that could do the lights, the video, then jump on drums. You know, what was really fun is I was playing for Testament and Anthrax on a lot of those shows as well. Yeah. You were filling in for Benante, right? Right. And that was fun. It's like, you know, you do the Testament show, take a moment on stage with Anthrax after that, then, you know, grab a shower and then go up and do the video screens for Slayer. How fun Jesus. was that? Boy, those those shows were awesome. Those were some of the most fun I've had on tour because Testament was the opening act on a lot of those shows. And, you know, once you're done playing at 5.30 and your bus call is not until like 2 a.m., you have got seven hours to do nothing. You know, catch Slayer, of course, catch the gig. But I would have gone crazy, you know, mentally if I just didn't have just that, you know, stimulus of, okay, got to learn the anthrax set again okay that's awesome and then oh now you got to learn this entire new thing you know like doing this (laughs) stuff for slayer so god we were over in europe testament was playing shows with slayer at like vakken and hellfest and grass pop and stuff and i was doing their video screens for all those too so that was pretty damn fun so yeah we had a good time doing that absolutely and that's not the only time you've done that you've also filled in playing full opeth sets after opening for opeth right right yeah that was fun too man oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so like your your work ethic just seems insane like i feel like some folks would you know go take a nap or something but you're you're just out there killing it i mean is that has it always been like that because it it seems like it with your your skill i mean do you have trouble not doing something on a daily basis (laughs) well 
<laughs> I guess what, like, when it comes to something opeth or anything where you can help your friends out, like your friends are in a bind, you know, right. uh, opeth in a bind, unearth in a bind, Charlie anthrax in a bind. It's like, of course, you know, like you don't even think twice. It's like you need this. Your band needs somebody, and it's like I'm here, you know, like. <laughs> why not it's 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 easy you know so let, let's get this done for you guys you know rather than like with the first time it happened with anthrax it was charlie had explained the dire situation that he and they were in therefore the entire tour was in he's like if i can't play norm our normal guys that i would have to go to for something like this they're, they're not available because this was kind of an emergency emergency so if i can't play these shows and we don't have another guy this tour gets canceled and i'm looking at like i don't know you know anthrax and crew 12 people testament and crew 12 people death angel and crew 10 12 people you know you're looking at like God, i don't know 30 something people that would be out of a gig then if i wasn't able to do it well hell that's not pressure now is it you know if you can't do it everybody loses so it's like okay i i got this so not a problem let's, let's make it happen you know plus getting to play some anthrax music that was cool oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> just that dedication is crazy i you know the fans appreciate it too i'm sure so well that's very cool yeah it, it's you know you get to stretch out you get to use your brain you get to use your you know i'm i've always been all about utilizing the drums as as cardio so fantastic you get a double cardio <laughs> workout you know and i i remember folks going dude you're playing for two and a half hours more than two and a half hours every night oh my god that's gotta be oh my and i'm like hey wait a minute when you record an album you're playing drums for 10 hours when you're recording an album if you're rehearsing for recording an album you're playing drums for eight hours or something so i mean play for two and a half hours and it's not as superhuman as it sounds right. you know Two and a half hours, whoopity doo, you know? Like, <laughs> okay, so that's all right. They're just drums, man. It ain't, it ain't brain surgery, you know? Well, Gene, this seems like a stupid question now, but uh, is there a song or an album or a project or something that you've worked on that you found just extremely challenging, one that you lost sleep over, or one that you struggled with maybe? Oh, absolutely. Oh, numbers of songs. Absolutely. There's the God, Laser Cannon Death Sentence by Death Clock. That one comes to mind. That was the most mf -er of a song I've ever recorded. And I remember there was a song for a project called Demon, D-A-E-M-O-N. What was the album called? Eye for an Eye. It was a song called Crucifixion. That was my buddy Anders Lundermark from a band called Conqueror, a Danish band. That was his like side project band, Damon. And that song, Crucifixion, that was an MFR. Oh My Effing God by Strapping, that was no slouch either live. I never <laughs> used to look forward to playing that one live. <laughs> There's been a number of songs over the years. It's like, oh God, Lord Almighty, you know, like, dang, this is this one's going to be challenging, but, you know, you get her done. Yeah, there, there's definitely some. The most challenging drum album I've ever done probably the most psychotic drumming i've done to this day would be from one of my one of my bands called mechanism and the album was called inspired horrific and it's it's on spotify and apple tunes and all that sort of thing. Mm. youtube of course that was a pretty challenging record and i i did all those drums and i think i tracked that one i tracked that album and yeah i i had like it's not like it's a big deal i recorded a lot of albums in one day but that mm -hmm. was, a, you know, that was one of those, you know, I had to record it in six hours because it was in between like a strapping tour, a strapping video shoot, a strapping tour. I had to squeeze this in, in for, you know, like strapping tour ended, record the album one the next day, do the strapping video shoot the day after that. And then the strapping next strapping tour started the day after that. So Good all within Lord. four four days four different things were happening and it's like you have you know you have about seven hours to record this album in so you know that kind of thing so there you go this is something i like to ask everyone just because you never know what they're going to say have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal oh shoot yeah sure man absolutely yeah god totally when i was nine years old i was nine yeah i was nine summer of 1977 i hadn't turned 10 yet i remember i was up in issaquah washington at my uncle's horse farm and i had i was there with my cousin and her 
her newborn cousin, Alan, and he was just a number of months old at the time. And I remember we were all asleep downstairs, like sleeping on the floor. My cousin Alan was on the couch and, you know, he was he was a wee one. He was only a few months old. And I remember he was crying like crazy. And my cousin, his mom, she was already oblivious to his crying at night. She was sleeping through it. And, you know, I'm like, oh, God, Alan, stop crying. You know, like, oh, Jesus, Lord Almighty. And I remember seeing my aunt Judy coming out of the, the kitchen. You know, there's a light on in the kitchen coming out of the kitchen and i was lying down and you could see me here my arm you know I was lying on my arm my arm was up in the air and it was uh, it wasn't how do i explain it i saw this shadow coming out of the kitchen this shadow walked over walked through my arm i felt cold through my arm and then my cousin alan stopped crying like that got to walk to my cousin at the couch you know my cousin's right there at the couch right behind me you know i thought it was i thought it was my my hand you know and you know i feel this cold thing walking and i watched this leg walk through my arm and then my cousin stopped crying and then the light upstairs turned on and here comes my aunt coming down the stairs to check on the crying kid and i was like wait a minute i thought that was you that just came out of the kitchen and you know i'm I'm groggy and I'm nine years old. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know any of this stuff. And, you know, and then my sister showed up a couple of weeks later to, you know, we were just family gathering there. My sister showed up and I remember her screaming, coming down, running down the, running down the, the, the stairs from upstairs. She said that some black creature, you know, black shadow thing walked right past her and just disappeared and she was flipping out and i was like oh that must have been the same thing that i saw you know and i didn't know anything about it you know but there you go so that was that there was that you know there was that kind of paranormal little weird weird action happening and i've never really thought twice about it and i've, I've never really thought "Ooh, you saw a ghost dude I, as far as i knew that was my aunt but and but the, i i will never forget that feeling that cold feeling i felt like when you feel somebody walking past you you feel that little cold breeze or whatever but this went through my arm arm you know because my arm is like hanging out there you know so that was just weird but whatever <laughs> yeah my last question is uh you know you've had an amazing amount of opportunities you've worked with a lot of bands and a lot of like really genius people like chuck Schuldiner and devin townsend have there ever been any bands or individual musicians you've had a chance to work with but couldn't make it work and you've just kicked yourself for not being able to hmm Boy, that's a great question. There's there's a ton of folks that I would love to have had the chance to work with. Guys like Steve yeah. Wonder or anybody like that or Marvin Gaye or anybody or Al Miola or something, you know? I mean, Steve Vai has always come to me and said, hey, man, how come you always make music? How come you always make albums with my friends, but we haven't made an album together? <laughs> that's a good question. That's always kind of fun. I'm like, call me up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But, maybe he'll hear this and call you up <laughs> yeah right yeah. Steve, give me a shout but yeah you know I, you know i'm i'm always very fortunate to be able to have worked with the caliber of musicians that i have had the wonderful opportunity to work with amazing players all throughout my career and so i learned something from everybody so i've had a million music teachers over the years you know because I, I learned something from everybody and a lot of times i learned a lot of things not to do you know so i i but i i learned from everybody you know so i'm i'm in a pretty fortunate position but there's you know I'm, well that's a good question um you know like brian may there's one that just comes to mind and i'm not sure if he's going to be involved in one of these projects that i'm coming up on up with but uh yeah, there's talk of him being involved in, in some project oh, I'm wow. attached to, but we'll we'll see about that. I'm not sure. I have a project coming out next year that's kind of a it is it is an amazing musical project. It's not my music, but I'm playing all the drums on this project, and it's from somebody who their name is known, but this project will definitely make their name be very well known and they're known for not necessarily they're involved in music but not it's not like they are a person who puts out albums if that can't be any more cryptic or strange sounding <laughs> uh, i'm fully intrigued i'm intrigued <laughs> it's, when it's time and that time is coming it's going to be really that is going to be a very very interesting project and a lot of amazing musicians are attached with that one and a lot of extremely well-known 
well-known musicians are involved in that. And some of these well-known musicians are stepping out of their genres to be a part of this project. It's very very heavy project and some of the folks that are going to be involved in in certain ways they're not necessarily known for being involved in heavy things so mm. that that there's wow. that you know but that's going to be that's going to be pretty darn cool and that project it's it's a number of years in the making and it is coming to fruition i would imagine that by 20 by i guess springtime of 2024 that will have a release so there you go but up until then I'm working on the new Dark Angel material and you know we are Dark Angel is getting to the point where we're going to be able to have some pretty exciting news for anybody interested in Dark Angel we're going to have some exciting news for for them very soon all things are moving along swimmingly adult swimmingly in the old death box <laughs> oh, yeah. there so you know we got the we got the movie coming out it looks like two albums are coming out in that tour with baby metal that's coming out that's all pretty exciting you know death clock is is gonna re-announce their presence with massive amounts of authority so uh we're just getting the new mixes in for the new for the new death clock albums and and ball crushing they're amazing you know so, and that's all stuff i could talk about there was a lot i couldn't say for a long time yeah, please um, don't but yeah but now <laughs> now, now all, everything there is i've said nothing that can't be said so. okay so there you go yeah, so, we just yeah, got in I mean, trouble yeah, for that actually <laughs> right you know don't have brendan reaching out going hey man can you shut up you know, <laughs> Uh, we literally just had that happen. So yeah, we did. With another person. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, oh, <laughs> so don't come after us, Brendan. Right. Nope. Everything we said here is a okay. It is all good, and all of it's pretty well known by now. So, Great. so there you Excellent. go. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. From Nick and uh, I both, it, we, we enjoyed ourselves very much. Right Absolutely. on, Justin. Right on, Nick. Well, I, I I did too. You know. So uh, excellent. Thank you guys very much. Man, appreciate it. All right, Gene. Well, you have a good rest of your night, man. We're gonna let you get out of here. All right, you guys. You guys take care, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good one. We'll see you. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Gene. As always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.